This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories of terrible parenting. On the first, we'll see why building a head cage for your child will help you build your retirement fund. And on the second, we'll see how babysitting a chicken can leave you destitute. The creature this week is the Fuca from Ireland. And you'll see how you should maybe not ride on that fire-breathing colt you met while wandering around the countryside after having one too many. This is Myths and Legends, episode 155, The Pearl. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. You know, being a parent is difficult. You can be too lax, too strict, too permissive, too authoritative. You might think that love means letting your kid do whatever they want, while someone else might think that that means strapping gemstones to an infant's head, a dilemma no doubt all of us have faced at one point. The two stories today are what happens when parenting goes wrong. The first is a fairy tale from Scandinavia, and we'll jump in with the birth of the daughter, Adelmina, who is about to receive two pretty big birthday gifts from her parents' fairy friends. The king bit his lip as the fairies looked at the baby. When were they gonna get to it? Come on, come on. As was the case for every fairy tale king, two fairies had showed up on the day of his child's birth and let themselves in. He was psyched too. This was his firstborn, a daughter, and he had heard from his buddy kings that all the fairies gave great gifts to their kids. No one really questioned why fairies only showed up to bless and give stuff to kids who needed it the absolute least. They were just happy to have more stuff. And seriously, the king's daughter, a girl by the name of Adelmina, had hit the mother load. The king, gritting his teeth and clenching his fists in anticipation, finally exhaled when the red fairy produced a pearl. Wait, a pearl? He had, no joke, thousands of those. He sometimes went swimming in pearls all Scrooge McDuck style. This was unacceptable. The king almost opened his mouth to say as much but the red fairy opened her mouth first. She said that as long as the girl wore this pearl, she will become more beautiful, more wise, and richer each passing day. The king's jaw dropped. What? Wow, okay, that was awesome. Wait, beauty and wisdom he understood, but wealth? Like, would gold or cattle or whatever just show up, or? The red fairy pursed her lips and smiled. The girl would get richer every day. Their fairies giving a magical pearl to a newborn. Try not to overthink things. As the king barely contained his giddiness when he placed the pearl in his pocket, the red fairy warned him. If the girl lost the pearl, she would immediately lose all the accumulated wealth, wisdom, and beauty. The parents nodded. Strap it to her head then. Got it. The blue fairy held up a finger. She actually had the parents covered in that regard. If the girl didn't wear the pearl, then she would be gifted with a humble heart. The parents waited for a long second. Oh, that's it? Oh, wow! So thoughtful. Well, that is so cool. Humble heart. Neat. That's a great quality. No cash with this one? New horse? Magic shoes? Nothing? Fun. After thanking the red fairy profusely and nodding politely to the blue fairy, the parents saw both out. Once gone, 
the new parents headed off to the blacksmith together. The whole way there, they discussed the different gifts they received. The more money, beauty, and wisdom each day one was great, but what was the deal with the blue, right? A humble heart? That's like the fairy equivalent of picking something up at the gas station on the way to the birthday party, like signing your name to a card for a gift somebody else got. Cheap fairy. As long as she's beautiful, wealthy, and wise, who cares what her heart is like? The parents high-fived and then gave the smith detailed instructions on making the crown for an infant so she would never be without the pearl. They were gonna get that money flowing in, compound interest, baby. Gonna get that new addition to the castle. Adelmina, now 13, strode out among the flowers flanked by four valets and four chambermaids. Ostensibly, they were servants, but in a way, they were also her jailers. She had figured that out at four years old, the first time she had tried to leave the castle. She slipped out at five, but then the entire group was replaced. She overheard them talking and learned that the previous eight had been executed for their carelessness. They were not to let the princess or the pearl out of their sight. Walking through the garden was tiresome. The first time the flowers had bowed to her because she was so beautiful, it was an honor. Now it was just like, she knew she was beautiful, all right? The flowers were embarrassing themselves. After the princess took her first steps, the question of how the money was to come was answered. As she walked, solid gold flowers bloomed behind her. They were plucked and melted down, and at first, they were used to better the kingdom. But soon every need was taken care of, so now they were just gilding everything. The floors of the castle were first. Now the walls were nearly covered in gold. Adelmina slept in a gold bed, ate from golden dishes, and wore gold clothes. It was all very classy and subtle. And, to round out the trifecta, Adelmina was wise and intelligent, which the story considers to be synonymous, but are actually two different modifiers. She was so smart that as soon as her childhood tutors spent an hour with her, they were learning from her. By 10, it was decreed by any of the academics that met her that such an intelligence as Adelmina's had never existed in the world and likely would never exist again. Now, the king and queen might have been forgiven for thinking that Adelmina was the best and most perfect creature on the earth, but Adelmina really couldn't be forgiven for thinking that. When she was old enough to understand it, she grasped the meaning of the pearl in the crown, one that had likely been grafted to her head like early headgear braces. With everyone telling her that she was 10,000 times more beautiful, wealthy, and wise than anyone else, she believed them. She was blessed by the fairies, so she was better than everyone else, she thought. She reasoned that it wasn't even arrogance, it was just a statement of fact. Unfortunately, as her beauty, wisdom, and wealth grew, so did her pride. If a new, beautiful flower in the garden didn't bow to her, she stomped the life out of it, ensuring that she remained the most beautiful. If another princess had a golden carriage, when Adelmina's was almost finished being done, or if someone remarked that another princess was the least bit clever, then Adelmina wept bitter tears, wondering why the world had to be so cruel. She rebuked everyone who didn't pamper her. Couldn't they see whose presence they were in? Didn't they know that she was better than them? But as soon as they started to show her any deference, she hated them, seeing them as nothing more than the boot-licking toadies who wanted a piece of her amazing life. She was feared by all and loved by none. None but her parents, who just encouraged her to keep wearing the crown because infinite beauty, wealth, and wisdom? That was her being her best self. No 
reason to look deeper and think about why they and everyone around them were constantly miserable. Then, one day, when she was 15, she found herself at the gate. She looked out at the Scandinavian fairy tale forest before her, and she took a step. In that instant, four valets and four chambermaids stood between her and the outside world. She didn't much care about going outside the kingdom until she was told she wasn't allowed. No one ever told her she wasn't allowed to do anything. She commanded them to move. The eight people exchanged glances, took a deep breath, and stayed where they were. They were afraid of the 15-year-old princess, but they knew what happened to their predecessors. They liked having their heads. Adelmina nodded, sure. They were ordered to keep her from harm, right? To keep her in the kingdom? She looked back toward the castle. She turned back to the servants and said that they were alone out there. No one could see them. No one could hear them. She tried to push past them, but they didn't move. She sighed. All right. Several minutes later, the last of the valet's hands gripped her ankle. The smart ones had run to warn the king and get more guards. The others, well, they didn't dare fight back against the princess. And Adelmina found a big stick. The last of the valets begged her not to go, but she hid his hand until she heard it crack. She sneered at the thought that someone so beneath her would stand in the way of his obvious better. He deserved death. She rushed off into the forest. When the shouting and the baying of hounds finally died down, Adelmina stopped to rest. She was sweating through her gold lace garments, but it didn't matter. She had a thousand dresses like this back at the castle. She leaned over a small creek to take a drink and smiled. Oh, hey there, beautiful. Adelmina was content to simply smile and look at herself in the water. Now, she might have gone full Narcissus, if not for one small change. You see, the crown she had been wearing, the one with the pearl, had been modified recently to be more crown-like and less head-cage-like. Adelmina liked the results, so her parents decided that they didn't need to force it on her. Besides, she never left the castle grounds, so the crown was never in danger of being lost. Until today. As she was leaning over the water, I guess sketching selfies in the dirt, the crown slipped from her head and plopped down into the water. She barely noticed it, what with editing her dirt selfie and all, and she waited for the water to stop rippling. When it did, she screamed. In the clear water, she didn't see a face that was, quote, a thousandfold more beautiful than anyone else in the world. She saw her normal-looking face. Her clothes weren't extravagant, gold-tinged, fashionable clothes, but a simple rough-spun peasant garb. And then... Her screaming slowly got quieter and quieter until she couldn't remember why she was screaming anymore. She couldn't remember who she was or what she was doing out in the forest or why her cheeks were wet from tears. She had lost the final gift of the Red Fairy. She had lost all of her accumulated knowledge and wisdom. Even if you happen to find yourself an amnesiac in the woods, the snarling and howling of animals just off in the trees is probably enough to get you up and moving. So Adelmina did, and as the dirt settled on the bottom of the creek, she left the pearl and the crown behind. 
hugged the elderly woman. She didn't know how wonderful she was. Adelmina thanked her and said she would do whatever the old woman needed her to do. Adelmina had been running for hours. First, she heard the wolves, and then the thunder and rain picked up. By the time she saw one candle glowing in the house of the old woman, who lived in the dark forest alone, she was soaked to the bone and exhausted. The old woman almost shut the door on Adelmina, but the girl said she didn't know anything, not her own name, not who she was or where she lived, nothing. If the old woman closed the door, that will be it for Adelmina. From the wolves, the storm, or simply starving, she would die. The woman took pity on her and let her come in so she could dry. She told Adelmina that since her husband died, she had been running the farm by herself. She needed someone to help tend the goats in the wood. And if Adelmina could help with that, then she could stay. She had to be content with bread and water most days. And when they had a feast, some warm goat milk. Adelmina said anything that wasn't the storm was good enough for her. She hugged the old woman, and the benefactor grimaced. She really wished Adelmina had dried off first. Back at the castle, the king was inconsolable. He heard a knocking at the door and turned. He knew before the servant said a word. All the toilets. The servant bit his lip and nodded. The king wept anew. The toilets, like his formerly golden walls and floors, were just normal now. This was the darkest timeline. The servant cleared his throat. There was another thing. The king looked up from his tear-stained marble floor and wiped his eyes like a peasant with a cloth that was merely silk and not gold lace silk. He told the servant to get on with it. Couldn't the man see? He was in mourning. The servant said that the storm was picking up. The princess, Adelmina, still hadn't returned. The king gasped. His daughter, that's right. That's what he was doing. Just after she left, all the gold turned to leaves and flowers. She probably lost the pearl. If they found her and the pearl, then maybe it could all come back. He went to the dungeon and found the four valets and the four chambermaids, half of them nursing black eyes and fractures from Adelmina. The king wanted to know everything. They pointed to the guy standing in the corner, the red-caped headsman who stood with a giant axe constantly hovering over their necks. The king turned back to the servants. No, he wasn't going anywhere. Now out with it. A search for the princess ensued. They searched all the homes in the forest, even that of the old woman and her kind young ward, who didn't recognize the name of the young princess. When the king's men left, the old woman confided in Adelmina 2.0, saying that she didn't wish ill on anyone. But if the princess never made it back, no one would really be worse off for it. The girl was a monster. When they didn't find Adelmina, they put out your standard medieval prince rescue compensation package. If anyone found Adelmina, they would earn her hand and half the kingdom. I joke about this a lot, but the story says that such a thing was actually custom in those days. Knights, princes, and even an occasional peasant or two searched for Adelmina. But for the next three years, no one heard a thing. It was as if she had completely disappeared. Meanwhile, Adelmina in the cabin of the poor old woman, was happy. She carried no memory of who she had been, so she didn't miss the comforts or the fame. Staying with the old woman had started as a way for her to get back on her feet, but Adelmina saw that the old woman needed help, and, well, Adelmina didn't have anywhere else to go, so she stayed. 
she lived with a clear conscience and quiet comfort. She was at peace. The old woman rolled her eyes one morning when they heard an armored knock on the door, saying that it was the girl's turn. Adelmina opened the door. Yes, they knew the princess had disappeared in the area, and no, they didn't know where she was, and... Huh. Hey. She was looking into the eyes of a prince. He smiled, and she smiled, and she asked if he wanted to come in for some bread and water. We'll finish up the story with entirely way too many angry young women, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. He was Prince Sigismund of Franconia in modern-day Germany. He was the younger son, so his only hope for inheritance was to marry. And when he heard about the famously lost Adelmina, he couldn't pass it up. He had been searching for three years, but he paused and looked again at Adelmina 2.0. He said that he was about to abandon the search and build a castle in this very forest. It was a beautiful place, he said with a smile. So he did. I'm not sure why he needed the money from the marriage to Adelmina when he was already vacation castle rich, and the old woman found that the prince's household needed regular goat milk so she and the girl weren't poor anymore. Sigismund even invited Adelmina and the old woman to dinner a few nights a week. Then, one day, while on a walk, Sigismund noticed something sparkling in the pond. He dipped his hand down and pulled out the crown. Sigismund gasped. It was the first sign of the lost princess in over three years. He rushed to the king. The next morning, an announcement went out to all the 18-year-old girls in the area, that would be Adelmina's age, that they could be a princess and not even know it. They only needed to try on the crown. The next morning, Sigismund and the royal family awoke to a crowd in the courtyard and surrounding the walls. There were at least 1,000 young women waiting. Around noon, the king grew bored and excused himself. Let him know when he had gold toilets again and, oh yeah, when his daughter was back safely. Around crown misfitting number 200, the prince was over it. The women were over it too. They made an agreement. At nightfall, the prince would pick away from whomever was present. It didn't matter to him, right? Adelmina could be any of them. They would just say that the crown didn't turn her back. The prince agreed, and he sent out a messenger of his own. Cut to dusk, where the prince was watching the road, asking the guard if he saw anything. The guard shook his head. Just the darkness of night descending on the kingdom. Because this is a fairy tale, the prince asked two more times. And, on the third, the guard said he saw dust in the road and the last lights of the sun. When Adelmina arrived at the judging, she was confused. But the prince took her hand. He asked if she'd marry him. He explained the whole situation. It didn't really matter who the real princess was they would get half the kingdom, so Adelmina and the old woman would never need to milk another goat again. Adelmina was stunned, but agreed. Yeah, yes, absolutely. She would marry him. There was a veritable horde of angry 18-year-old and 20 and 30 and 40-something-year-olds 
Hey, no judgment. When you have a shot at getting half a kingdom, you take that shot. But they were dispersed by the guards. I guess left to wander the dark forest alone at night. Great planning, everyone. Sigismund held the shepherd girl's hand, and right before they entered the throne room, he turned to her. Better put this on and keep up the ruse. He slipped the crown on her head. Huh. Perfect fit. In an instant, all the knowledge came flooding back into Adelmina's mind, of her past life, of her arrogance, narcissism, and just general terribleness. Sigismund's jaw dropped. Wait, was she the princess? Adelmina ran weeping to her parents, who embraced her. She said she was so sorry for how she had been. She thanked them for looking for her, and said that from now on, it will be different. She will be different. A servant skidded breathlessly into the throne room. Sire, the toilets. The king fist pumped. Yes, all was right with the world again. Adelmina walked over to Sigismund, who, still stunned, smiled. Wow, he always knew that there was something special about her. And the beauty, riches, and knowledge were nice, but really? He gingerly plucked the crown from her head. He preferred this version. The couple kissed. The crowd around them cheered, beautiful as Adelmina's pearl, but a humble heart is even more so. Yeah, the last line's a little on the nose. Adelmina did retain her memories and her hard-won personal growth from the previous years. And when her beauty, wealth, and knowledge were restored to her, she stayed that kind, humble person that she was in the forest. I do like how the blessings weren't bad in their own right, but they ended up being a curse for young Adelmina until she had time to develop enough humility and strength to deal with the potential downsides of the blessings. We have a short final story today, that of another child who only a parent could love. The story of Vardiello from the Pentamore by Giambattista Basile. It was 1500s Italy, and Vardiello was doing an awesome job. His mother, Granonia, had left him in charge of the family's literal nest egg, a hen. When the hen laid eggs, the mom was gonna sell the baby hens for cash and raise the roosters up for slaughter. She went to run some errands, but left Vardiello, her son, in charge. She was happy about the seriousness with which she undertook the task. She told him to watch the hen and the eggs, to avoid the poison she kept in the pantry, right next to all the food, where all poison belongs. She had no idea how serious he was. For the next hour, he dug a small pit around the house and covered it with sticks to trap any children or small animals who tried to come and steal the chicken or her eggs. Then, he heard a clucking inside. The hen was up and walking around. Vardiello ran his fingers through his hair. This was not good. His job was to watch the chicken and the eggs, and now the eggs were inside getting cold. He tossed the last of the sticks over the pit and made his way inside to gently correct the hen. And five minutes later, the hen was dead. It started out gently. He began nudging the hen back to her eggs and then shoving. The hen didn't like that, so she pecked at Vardiello. Vardiello responded to that aggression in kind 
by getting a rolling pin. Now, Mommy Hen was dead. One half of his job was a failure. Now, he stood over the second half of his job, the eggs getting colder and colder in the morning air. He grimaced. Those babies were dying, and it was all his fault. Then, he had an idea. The mother hen sat on the eggs to keep them warm, right? Well, he would do the same. As soon as he heard the crunching of eggshells, he knew he had made a horrible mistake. I'm not sure what crushed, half-formed birds look like, and I don't really want to Google it, but that's what Vardiello saw when he looked down at the nest. He screamed. After he changed his pants, he knew he had to figure something out. But he was also hungry. And he did have a dead hen right here. Less than an hour later, the hen was finished cooking. Maybe mom wouldn't be so mad with him when she came home to dinner. Ooh, you know what would be great with this? Some breakfast wine. He went and uncorked the cask. When he heard his plate crash to the ground, he shrieked and saw a cat, a stray that hung around outside their house, bolt off with the chicken in his mouth. Bardiello rushed off after the animal. He returned, sweating through his clothes and picking twigs out of his hair. He had fallen down his own pit, the one that he used to trap children to keep his hen safe, on his chase after the now-cooked hen. He was sure there was some irony in that sentence, but he was way too bewildered to suss it out. Then, he saw the results of his chase. He had left the wine cask uncorked, and the whole barrel of wine had overflowed out into the house. He rushed to the pantry, where he grabbed a bag of flour and threw it on the floor to try to clump up the wine, but it barely made a dent. He looked at the lack of hen, the crushed eggs, the wine-soaked everything, the fact that he had used the flour they were going to use for bread when the hen didn't work out on the floor. This day had gone about as bad as it could go. After a few minutes of fretting, his eyes lighted on the open pantry. He had failed in the one job his mom had given him while she was out, and then many subsequent jobs. He saw no other option. When he had finished eating all of the poison, he sat back and waited for death to take him. He laid there for minutes, and then he heard footsteps. Hey, why is there a pit? Oh, no. Mother, I am dead. I couldn't live with my shame so I poisoned myself, let our last minutes together be of peace, not yelling at me for all the stupid things I did, Vardiello remarked. The mother cocked an eyebrow. Where did he get poison? She looked at the pantry inside. The nuts, the candied almonds she had been saving, telling the boy they were poison, that he shouldn't even touch them. Oh, that explained why the poison was, like, super delicious, Vardiello remarked, sitting up. But why did his mother want to keep poison nuts to eat? Granonia groaned. She stepped over the wine-drenched flour clumps and found some sugar in the cupboard, pouring him a spoonful. This was an antidote to the poison. He eagerly gulped it down and thanked his mother. After many hugs and many reassurances that she wasn't mad, the mother and son were reconciled. After all, he was her sweet 25-year-old boy. A few days later, the mother finished a rush job so the family could eat. It was a nice outfit that she had sewn. She was getting dinner started 
and entrusted the job of selling the clothes on the streets of Naples to her sweet boy, warning him not to do business with anyone who spoke too much. The price was the price. They needed it to live. Hi, would you like to buy some clothes? Vardiello asked. The person looked. Uh, I mean, okay, how much are the... He replied. Before Vardiello cut him off, nice try, chatterbox. Move along. This continued until Vardiello found the man with the smoothest, lightest skin. He didn't say much and didn't move. And better yet, he was the perfect customer for clothes. He was just standing there naked. It took a little convincing to get the clothes over his head, and Vardiello, astute salesman that he was, said that the stranger didn't have to make a decision today. He could wear them around and try them out. Vardiello would be back here tomorrow to collect the money. Vardiello took the man's silence for a yes and went home. His mother's clothes were the best quality, and he knew he had just made a sale. Are you sure you didn't just put the clothes on a statue? Granania asked when Vardiello came home, because it kind of sounds like you just put the clothes on a statue. But Vardiello replied with outrage. Did she think so little of him? She would see. Tomorrow, he would return with the money she was owed. Cut to the next day, when Vardiello returned with an armful of coins, weeping. He, he had killed a man. When Vardiello returned the next day, he, once again, found the statue, because yes, it was absolutely a statue, and that statue was once again naked. The clothes were stolen off of it almost immediately the previous day. It was in a somewhat secluded area, and that's why Vardiello felt comfortable getting a branch, threatening the man's life, and then beating him senseless when he didn't pay for the lost clothes. It was fairly easy to beat someone with no senses senseless, and the statue cracked. And what came pouring out? Gold coins. Vardiello was stunned. He couldn't believe that that's what everyone looked like on the inside, that our organs were just gold coins. Granania told her son to go have a seat outside and don't tell a soul about this. Mama would take care of everything. Vardiello sat outside in anxiety, but Granania facepalmed. Corruption was a problem in the city, and Vardiello finding several bags of gold coins stashed in a statue, had found enough evidence to put away whichever powerful magistrate had stashed it there, if they let the mother and son live. He was going to crack. She knew it. His actions had made life difficult for years. But now, they would get both of them killed. Everyone said she should have disciplined him when he was younger, or corrected any of his actions at all over the course of his life. She had thought that that was being harsh. Now, though, she saw that she had only set up the young man for failure. She needed to figure something out. And so she went to the second floor and started tossing out food. Baked goods, figs. She sprinkled some milk. Vardiello shrieked and ran for a bucket, saying that their luck had turned. This rain of food and milk was exactly what they needed. The strange rain helped him take his mind off the murder he believed he just committed. And it also helped with something else. Because the next day, the mother was right. Vardiello cracked. 
he had left a half dozen gold pieces strewn between the broken statue and the area where they lived. When he chanced upon an official clearing the crowd out of the way, he was asked about the gold piece. And he said he found a whole pot of them after the murder. He was immediately arrested and dragged before the magistrate, who demanded that Bardiello explain himself. What coins? What murder? Vardiello looked at the ground. He found them outside the palace, in a mute man, on the day that it rained raisins, figs, and milk. Everyone asked for a little clarification, and he was happy to provide it, grateful to get it off his chest. So he explained in detail how he beat a mute man, the man bled gold coins, as we all have in all of our organs, and then he went home, and it rained raisins, figs, and milk, as it does sometimes, everyone knows that. Oh, okay, the magistrate said, smiling and nodding. He whispered to a messenger, who arrived a couple of minutes later, with two strong men. Fardiello said he was sorry, but the judge shook his head. Nothing to be sorry about. So, I won't be going to jail? The judge shook his head. So, I'm free to go? The judge, again, shook his head. Two strong men grabbed Vardiello's arms. Vardiello wouldn't be going to prison. That would be cruel. Getting gold from a mute man? Raining raisins and milk? Vardiello was obviously insane. He was going to an asylum where he could get the help he needed. Vardiello left screaming, telling them to find his mother. She could vouch for his sanity. Please, find his mother. Vardiello? Insane? Granania said, and then she broke down crying. Yes. Yes, he was. It felt good to finally admit that. He needed help, and she was grateful that he was finally able to get it. The messengers thanked the woman and left the home. As soon as they disappeared down the path, Granania wiped her eyes. She had stopped crying. Granania walked over her wine-stained floor, and back to the table, where she continued counting out her gold. Those are the stories this week. Next week, it's another episode with multiple stories. This time, it's an episode about daughters. One is what happens when a king divides his kingdom up perfectly, and then there's a surprise addition to his family. And the other is a story of Molly Whoopi, the giant slayer who slayed pretty much everything but giants. If you'd like to support the show beyond leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or telling a friend, there's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a duct tape necktie, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad free versions of the show that won't simultaneously class up and drag down any outfit. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is the Fuca from Ireland. If you look outside and it's raining while the sun is out, you're gonna have a bad night. Or someone is. You see, when it's raining while the sun is out, that means the Fuca is gonna be out that night and roaming. I'm sure there was a time when, if you were a lost and weary traveler and you saw a wild colt running around in the wilderness, dragging chains, you might be tempted to mount that colt bareback for a ride home. I feel like that time has probably passed us by 
but if you find yourself lost and roaming around outside of cell phone service, hungry, with no idea how things could get worse, well, the FUCA is how things can get worse. If you take that totally normal, chain-dragging, fire-breathing horse up in his offer for a free ride, be prepared for it to toss you hard into a ditch after it repeatedly bucks so hard that it breaks your bones. If you come across the FUCA in any other forms, it's actually kind of worse because in the form of a giant eagle, the trickster will pick you up, but they won't helpfully deposit you in Rivendell. They will take you to the moon to suffocate. If it shows up in the form of a goat, it will trample you until you die or until you bless yourself three times. Though that's especially challenging when you're being trampled to death by a giant goat. Not content with ruining everyone's night, the Fuka will also mess with your produce. When berries go to seed and are left to rot on the vine, or when they're killed by a frost, parents tell children that the Fuka has spit on them. But then, as the year progresses, the Fuka gets way more intense, and in between stranding travelers on the moon, defecates and urinates all over remaining crops. Only one person has been able to successfully ride the Fuka, medieval Irish high king Brian Baru, who obtained three tail hairs from the Fuka and used that to make a magic bridle he used when he managed to stay mounted on the Fuka until it was too exhausted to move. And he forced two promises out of it. One, that it would no longer torment Christians or ruin their land. And two, that it would never attack an Irishman unless he was drunk or intended to harm someone. Which leads me to my last point of advice. Don't wander the wilderness drunk. Because if you are, that's probably the only time taking a ride from a fire-breathing, chain-dragging horse would sound like a good idea. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Magoosh for sponsoring us this week. Do your career goals require you to take a standardized test, like the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, MCAT, or SAT? Magoosh Online Test Prep provides you with the tools you need to get a great score, like study schedules, up-to-date practice questions, video lessons, and support from expert tutors. Study anywhere, anytime, on desktop or mobile. Visit Magoosh, M-A-G-O-O-S-H, dot com, and enter the promo code MYTHS for a 15% off discount. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.